Welcome to Changing Places, brought to you by Avis and Young. In Changing Places, we explore our continuing and complex relationships with the built world around us. I'm your host, Miriam So. How many times have you walked down a major street in your city and town without taking notice of the stores around you? What is it that makes you want to step into a brick and mortar store outside of escaping the rain for a few minutes or using their air conditioning? So often the disconnect between how we're lured into a store versus the function of a space rarely line up with each other. Dynamic retail experience is a fascinating concept, which I want to explore on two fronts, what it means for businesses and how we as a society view it. Let's dig a little deeper into how it's been handled in three cities, Dublin, Toronto, and Shenzhen. In 2019, Grafton Street, Dublin's premier shopping district, was number 13 on Cushman and Wakefield's list of the most expensive retail rents in the world. However, the street was in need of a classic revamp. When HECF Grafton, part of the international property company Heinz, asked the Dublin City Council to remove street traders in order to enact a new policy dedicated to redeveloping the street into a dynamic retail experience, the proposal was swiftly shot down. However, not all attempts to transform existing location into a dynamic retail experience is met with such ire. Toronto's Air Jordan store was lauded for its experiential nature, underground kids-only concourse, and athletic training facility. Shenzhen's Burberry store is billed as the brand's first luxury social retail store, which blends the real world and social media while providing shoppers with an immersive digital experience. Dynamic retail experiences can occur in many ways, which is what I'll discuss with my guests, Jeff Dowd of Jeff Dowd & Associates and Stan Yoshihara, Principal Managing Director, Western Region Asset Services at Avis & Young. We'll get their takes on dynamic retail experiences, how COVID has altered the future of dynamic retail experiences, and what it looks like as online retail battles the high street for supremacy, eyeballs, and above all, money. We'll begin in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo with Stan Yoshihara. This micro-market, or let's call that, uh, really micro-market, which Little Tokyo is, from 1st to 3rd Street, you know, north and south, and then east and west would be Alameda to Los Angeles Street. We're in Japanese Village Plaza, and this was developed somewhere, I believe, in the 70s by the Hyun family, and uh, it really took off, and at that time, through the 80s, 90s, mostly Asians and Japanese, and then it, now today, as you look around, uh, that would be almost a minority. Right? Mm. It's a great melting pot of L.A. in terms of diversification here. The Japanese spirit and the Asian spirit is still here by the restaurants, but eventually there's going to be more you know, different types of concepts because the consumer is changing, so it has to change a little bit. Well, I think, again, it's... A lot of the businesses where they survive, this community is that micro-market that supports itself. I'm wondering if Little Tokyo is the dynamic retail experience for someone who's coming here. Because people will come from different areas to come here. It's not just the locals here. Because you're always going to have, no matter how great the internet gets, online ordering and things, there's a social aspect, and especially to going to a restaurant or cafes, coffee. Right. It's, it's really interactive that you go there to meet people, to talk, to socialize, right. meet friends who you haven't seen for a while. 
and to experience. That's why experiential is such a word in retail, right? That it's, you gotta have that. That'll never go away totally. In fact, I still think it'll be fairly dominant that once in a while you just gotta get out of the house and go. Stan Yoshihara, welcome to Changing Places. Stan, how has Little Tokyo's preservation of history led to it becoming a prime example of a natural, dynamic retail experience? Well, Little Tokyo has always kept its culture for decades because it's based on historical and a lot of the uh, preservation of the buildings, the where a lot of the retail is, are still historical sites. And, and so I think that really helped that establish itself as a region that first started, I first started going there probably early 80s. And it was mainly at that time, a lot of Japanese would go there. And then it transitioned into more Asians there in the 90s and 2000s. And now I would say it's 100% mainstream. So it really helped that the actual hard assets were historical and all of a Japanese nature. And First Street, Second Street, I would say is 90% still Japanese named in the restaurants. But with all of your experiences in the real estate sector, how important do you think it is for brands and businesses to embrace a fully dynamic retail environment at their locations? I think branding is and marketing are key to who and what you are and what you represent. And that's why uh, the majority, again, if you go to Little Tokyo, you'll find that the national brands, especially on First Street, Second Street, are really a minority. I, I'm trying to think of any uh, national brand there, and I, I just I can't think of any. Most are from the roots up local, and I think that's how they really establish themselves. And And they're here today. And ironically, even through covid only a few of the restaurants have closed, uh, and it's been extremely difficult, but that community tends to rally around itself very, very well. Should brands focus on a big destination store, for example, a flagship store on Fifth Avenue or Grafton Street, or should all of their stores follow the same dynamic plan? The flagship stores and destination, what you look for in retail is destination is where you're well known. But I think the greater thing that you would look for first is velocity. So if you have destination and velocity, so a name that people know, then you're going to be a very sustainable concept. When it comes to the quick service retail, the QSR, how are the coffee shops that you've invested in handling this in order to get customers in or have an enhanced experience? You know, um, those who know are in LA proper, Cafe Dulce, uh, pretty much hospitality is number one. And we made our online ordering and our takeout. We always had it, but with COVID and people not being allowed to sit, Right. We, we look for, um, patios. The patios have really saved a lot of the QSRs and restaurants too, in terms of they made it viable to actually come to a restaurant and sit outside. Well, if you look forward the next five years, do you think things will change to the point, for example, we'll see a coffee shop that's interactive? Maybe there's some holograms in there and an otherworldly experience in, in that realm. Is that going to be the norm or do you think that'll be the exception? I think human beings continue to evolve. And one of the things that we all like and why the internet will never, to me, I don't like using never, but I don't think it will ever have 100% use uh, or even maybe 80. People like the social interaction. So we like to be around people. And so when you talk specifically about coffee 
we built the business around that social interaction where people like to come and socialize with their friends or their business colleagues. And so I think that will come back because we're human beings and we strive. Nobody wants to be 100%, you know, in a house or locked up in an office. We really want to get out. It feels good, right? It's very comforting. So Stan, what parts of the dynamic retail experience do you think will not come back or aren't coming back at all? I think the outside environment, more the urban type patio dining is here to stay. So I don't think there'll be as great a demand, overall speaking, on sit-down dining, where that demand was really high across the board. It'll still probably be high at the higher-end restaurants, right? But certainly at fast casual, especially in areas where you have great weather like California and Florida and things like that, I believe that that will be much more prevalent than indoor dining. Well, thank you so much, Stan. After this break, we're going to speak to Jeff Dowd, the mastermind behind one of the true pinnacles of the dynamic retail experience, AT&T's futuristic store at 1 Powell Street in San Francisco. We'll speak to Jeff after this. Before we head to San Francisco, Changing Places, brought to you by Avis and Young, continues to explore and question our complex relationship with the built world around us. Does the thought of training in a Nike store with their gear and trainers excite you? Do you want a trip to Burberry to be just like visiting a hotel lobby to gossip with your friends? Or do you never want to set foot in a retail store again, no matter what? Well, stay tuned for the next portion of Changing Places, brought to you by Avis and Young. I'm Miriam Sobe. Before we speak to Jeff, let's head to the AT&T store at 1 Powell Street in San Francisco. Hi, this is Emily Shaw. When I went in the store itself, I honestly was completely blown away. I had no idea from um, talking with people how elaborate and honestly just how elaborate the internal uh, setup and experience was. There was this big panoramic um, screen along the top, super high ceiling. Um, in one area, there were movie, like, theater seats set up um, with a screen in front. There was another area that had a couch and was kind of set up like a living room. They also had a tray of Wonder Woman-themed cookies, which it didn't look like. Maybe it looked like one or two had been taken. Um, and they had Wonder Woman bags. Um, and upstairs, there was this elaborate friend set up that was uh, for the TV show Friends that had like the complete set of that living room and kitchen with uh, the door all set up so you could kind of be in the space which was actually really cool um, although one thing I noticed about the upstairs areas I didn't see one other person up there um, I think my overall takeaway from the experience was that um, you know most of the people I talked to said that they were there just to take care of business Jeff Dowd, welcome to Changing Places. Jeff, I'm interested to learn more about your work with AT&T at their location on uh, 1 Powell Street in San Francisco since it's the pinnacle of a dynamic real estate experience. What was the edict from AT&T when it came to turning the historic 1 Powell building into a model in dynamic real estate experience? So that's a really, really complicated question. <laughs> and, and it took a long time to get to an answer because uh, we started out with 1,500 retail stores that had a much different purpose than anything that developed after that, particularly with the Michigan Avenue flagship store, which was the first AT&T theme park that really emerged out of this whole process. 
It's really nice. It, it reminds me of Times Square, actually, the way they have the digital pre- presentation across the top. We presented a number of different concepts, but this was a different and unique opportunity. And the reason is that the location at One Powell is right at the turntable on Market Street. And there's like 100,000 people that pass by there every day. So the idea was to try to draw people in that might not otherwise be there. So this is related to some other questions you're going to ask me, I'm sure. (laughs) To try to get people interested in a company at all that's really not... Uh, it's not like a Disney brand. It's not something you go to seek out unless probably you've got a, an issue. <laughs> probably you've got a, a data plan problem. Probably you need a new device. Probably you've got something broken. I mean, there, a lot of people come in for all of those reasons. It has nothing to do with creating a digital retail experience. So, so kind of touching on that, is spending millions of dollars a way that you can lure people into a space they might only go if they needed to go for a new phone or, or to fix something? Well, that, that, of course, figures in pretty prominently because we know from the statistics at Michigan Avenue in Chicago that fully 60% of people that walk in the door uh, already have a preconditioned idea of what they want to get out of that experience. And the theme park notion is a real extension of how do we extend the brand to people that aren't going to be there to embrace our brand, but are going to be there to embrace what we're offering them, which we we're hoping is something much more interesting. The measure that we've been using, and of course, you've talked about this probably a zillion times or the net promoter score, is a really important measure of how people relate to your brand. And if you can score eight or higher, you're winning. If you score eight or lower on a one to 10 basis, you're a failure. Maybe Disneyland I might recommend because I had such a great time, but there's nothing about the brand that really draws me to the idea that I need to respond to a survey in any way that's possibly favorable or unfavorable to the brand as a whole. That's the kind of challenge that we're facing today, I think. When you mentioned some of these ways of of designing the the space, I guess, what is the solution then to getting people into a retail space that may never interact with it otherwise for like basic necessities? How do you manage to to pique their interest and keep them coming back? Well, we had to come up with a concept that was really going to resonate with the local community. That was key. So one of the things we did was we sent out uh, three of our people with cameras and other kinds of equipment to gather information and imagery from the area so we could better understand what's happening in the nooks and crannies of San Francisco. Not the tourist centers, not the Transamerica building, but the back alleys, the graffitied walls, the secret entrances, the way people get around town is very key to really understanding who lives there and how they interact with their city. So we were connected on that premise. The concept that we came up with that seemed to resonate strongest with the client was the marriage of technology and art, is that there's a lot of really creative people in the San Francisco area, and we wanted to reflect that in whatever content that was going to be brought to the digital screens inside the store. This is the the basis of how we can really sell this idea to the public, is to really draw attention to the idea that what we might do with this presentation could be very technologically related, but also extremely artistic. And if we could hit the right notes with that, I think that we could maybe get all of those 100,000 people at the One Powell turntable to take a look at the 50-foot wide screen that we put that was clearly visible from where they were standing and try to create something more interesting with it. So we uh, divided that into three categories, and those categories are the connected life story, and then the entertainment story, which is really all about DirecTV and Warner Media and, and things that you don't really associate with AT&T so much. I just want to see the Friends set. So it's like the apartment building where Monica and Rachel live most of the time. So it's just like the door, you know, the purple door with the yellow frame, and you have the couch, and you have the, the dining area. 
It's just a cute little thing. And they have the dog from Joey's and Chambers of Heaven as well. It's also endless. What we were able to do with it was that what do you do with these spaces if you want to like reuse them for public events and so forth? Is what we were able to tap into what we built with this thing to bring Ludacris on site to give a concert. His music was then delivered to the screen and the screen was delivering content that was related to Ludacris and all of it was like a kind of a fantastic live event, which really upped the ante for what we could do with it. And I think really paid off on the idea. Actually, it got all the uh, top executives at AT AT&T very excited because they suddenly realized that maybe they had something more than just a place where you're going to go in and buy a cell phone. That's really interesting. And it it seems like it's a very immersive experience when you design it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was two full floors, getting somebody to come in and look at the 50-foot wide screen is one thing, but getting them to go upstairs and, and understand what smart cities are about or connected bicycles or all of the rest of those stories are upstairs. And getting people to go upstairs was a big draw. And we had to use digital devices and and lead-ins to bring people up there to try to extend that space, to try to turn it into more of a theme park than it really existed on the ground floor. It's really interactive. It's also, it's a, it's a modern experience, but yet there's a lot of human um, interaction. It sounds like you were pretty much on, on the cutting edge pre-COVID because now a, a lot of people are more hesitant to go indoors or to be in enclosed spaces. Do you think that that's going to change the way the dynamic retail experience is or you've sort of set the tone with, with some of the technological advancements? I, I think it has to change. We had experimented with a lot of iPad technologies and AR and some other ways of creating Easter eggs around the store and getting people more involved in their experience there. Now, if you can make that really interesting, if you can make AT&T as cool as Disneyland, uh, it, it's a no-brainer. But that's the challenge, right? To get there is a, is a hard leap. And the entertainment leap was one that they really embraced in order to try to get there. But it doesn't feel like uh, it's going to stick uh, when it comes to how people are relating to brands as simple as AT&T. You know, let's go and bring those people in and then try to surprise them and delight them with things they didn't expect. I mean, I think Build-A-Bear and American Doll have a pretty good concept of this already. So I absolutely think the interaction element is very useful and very good for the customer's experience. And yeah, I think more of that would be beneficial for the for the, like also a bank like my bank actually used to have like in the floor like this little what was it like it looks like a small aquarium so when you walked over it like small fishes disappeared and that just made me stay longer in the bank just to play around with that so i think it gives you a great experience inside store and you feel more comfortable inside the store actually I like that you keep bringing up um, Disney because I'm a huge Disney geek. Uh, <laughs> and and I think this, the way that those spaces are designed, I mean, if you think of Disneyland or even the Nike store, it's an example of a dynamic retail experience where you know exactly where you are. The story is very clear from the minute you enter that space. Is that something more brands from, let's say, a local bookstore to a mega coffee chain should focus their attention on if they want to achieve maximum impact with customers going forward? If you're a Starbucks, I think people have very limited expectations about what their experience is going to be when they walk in that store. And, you know, that's doing pretty well for Starbucks. But if you step it up to Nike, you've got this whole customization thing that's like people really revere the shoes. We we weren't really there to actually do any shopping. (laughs) It was mostly to like play with the set. It turns out they had like other interactive experiences like from Space Jam, Wonder Woman and, and other things you could play with. We hardly just saw the actual shopping area of the store. It was more like the, the experience of like the other things they offered, basically. Are the, are the possibilities endless when it comes to dynamic retail? 
when we have like now with digital and virtual spaces, does it seem like we're just at the tip of the iceberg with creating? Well, I think the only answer as a designer to a question like that is, yeah, absolutely it is endless. So understanding the brand is everything. You just have to, you have to go after what we think is going to connect with those customers and, and get it out there and try things. We have to try, try, try and see if we can come up with new and interesting ways to do it. As a consumer myself, I think if I went to a Tempur-Pedic store, if you had some little Easter eggs hidden around the store or things that I had to look for, I would, I would probably come in. Why not? <laughs> it's a battle, man. And I have had so many discussions with the executives at AT&T about that very idea. It's like, how can we, can we just give them an iPad when they walk in the door and see what happens? Because we're going to have a lot of surprises there. But, you know, they're not ready to spend the kinds of, um, of dollars that it re- really requires to experiment wide open like that without having it work harder, which is something I... I heard from the executives over and over, hey, this is a great concept. We love that you're bringing in social media. We love that you're allowing our customers to respond live in the store to things that are happening. It's all great. But can you make it work harder? And what that means is can you sell more product? (laughs) So I didn't come in to get a discount. I I might want one, but I didn't come in to be bludgeoned with, with the advertising side. I came in to fix my phone. I think that over the next five years, I think uh, advertising has already changed dramatically in 10 years. And in the next five, wow, I I don't know what's happening next, but it's very, very difficult to convince any of my advertising clients to engage in television commercial making right now. I would say for a bank, I don't think it'd really work out well just because people uh, need to get in and out. But for like a bookstore or library, um, that would be a little bit more advantageous, right? Because people could hang out and be in that type of space and where they could look at multiple books or whatnot. And for a younger youth, that would be something that I wouldn't mind seeing implemented in such places like that. We can kind of come in and sit around and talk to people like, oh, well, I just want to get my money and make sure all of my stuff's together. But I know if, if they kind of if they kind of merged it with things that you're actually needing to do, like I want to talk to my financial advisor, for instance, at the bank, or if it was something that was like uniquely targeted to whatever retail experience that company has, then I think it would be worthwhile. Um, And I think people would be open to it. I'm just curious for myself here that social media has played a huge role in the way people experience things. So for example, when you said mentioning the amusement park sort of experience when they go to these stores, is it also because it's a way where people can take pictures of themselves in that location and share it with others and they want, they're looking for that kind of immersive experience? Yeah, I think social media has been uh, very positive in a number of ways. One is that people are taking peer reviews seriously and they, they might want to consider going to a different company if everybody thinks that the brand A is really sucking and they want to try something else. That's, that's one way. Uh, the ability to understand how people think about your products is real-time, a great example was when Amazon decided to release their own cell phone called the Fire Phone. That Fire Phone went, they, they shipped 250,000 units to AT&T stores, and within two weeks, they shipped them all back. They said, we can't sell your product. So, well, how do you know that? Because social media has let us know that they don't care. We don't have to take three months to figure that out any longer. We can find out right away. So real time is a big deal. Retailers really feel about how their relationships are with customers. So it's it's getting to a more honest time, I hope, because the resistance to advertising is so strong that they're just not going to tolerate it. Well, from your point of view, Jeff, what are the trends that you think we'll see over the next five years when it comes to the future of retail and dynamic retail experience? Well, one trend is 
screen space itself, the, the sizes and technologies that bring that into a space is really variable. There's so many ways to do it. And what choices do you make and why? And how many people do you expect to command attention from at any particular time? It's way different. And so if you have an interactive experience that requires two or three people to stand in front of it to understand what it is, it's way different if there's 350 people. So those kind of trends lead to bigger and bigger involvement in a smaller and smaller way for the brand. I think we have to do better. I think we have to neutralize the effect of the brand and allow people to invite that brand into their experience rather than dealing out the experience and saying, okay, here's what I just did for you. So eat this, digest this, and let us know how you feel. That, not so much anymore. I, don't th- I just don't see that the same way. So I think we're getting to a time where we expect people to mingle. They're, they're not going to crowd into a space. They're going to spread out. They're going to try to have public experiences, but not get into situations that are going to be threatening. And that changes the dynamic of that quite a bit, I think. Thank you so much, Stan Yoshihara and Jeff Dowd, for taking the time to guide us through the future of retail and the dynamic experiences which await us. I'm very excited to see how dynamic retail experiences play out in my city, as well as the rest of the world. I really do think the possibilities are endless. I'm Miriam Sobe, and this is Changing Places, brought to you by Avis & Young. See places changing and evolving in your neighborhood? Share your evolving spaces with us on social media using the hashtag Changing Places Podcast. I'm Miriam So, and this is Changing Places. Changing Places is brought to you by Avis and Young. Our producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. Our sound engineer is Patrick Emile. Additional production support is provided by Jar Audio.